One good thing about the last year's seemingly endless crisis has been the opportunity to render outstanding public service. And that's what this year's class of Service to America medalist finalists have done. Announced this week, many have risen to the challenge of the pandemic. Here with a review, the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, Max Steyer. Max, good to have you on. Hey, pleasure to be here. And, of course, the federal employee viewpoint scores are out this week. It's Public Service Recognition Week. The president issued a proclamation saying sort of a tip of the hat to federal employees and public service employees in general. Kind of a red-letter week, isn't it? Absolutely. Look, we have an unbelievable set of problems that we face, and our federal employees are the ones that are truly central to addressing them, and they deserve recognition in at least one week of the year where you get to say thank you on a consistent basis. Now, this year's class of finalists aren't entirely pandemic-related, but quite a few of them are, I think probably more than you would normally get in the health area in a given year. Is that how it looks to you? Yep. I mean, it's impossible to overlook a once-in-a-lifetime or more health crisis like the pandemic, and the federal uh, workforce has really been central to addressing the issues across the board. So we actually created one special category for COVID-19 response, and they're just amazing people, everyone from Ian Brownlee and the team at the Department of State that helped bring back 100,000 Americans who were stranded across the world to Kazmikia Corbett and Barney Graham at NIH, who are really responsible for the vaccines that are making so many of us safe from contracting the virus. So it's an extraordinary group of people. And they are, as you just said, doing both amazing work responding to the pandemic, as well as continuing to fight fires across the entire federal system on all kinds of issues that affect us even beyond the pandemic. And the thing we don't realize, too, is that in responding to the pandemic, it takes many forms other than strictly health-related, although it's that also, as you mentioned, the folks responsible for the vaccine. But there's also repatriation of Americans stranded abroad. Like you mentioned, uh, Ian Brownlee and a team at the State Department did that one. There's also the dispersion in a fair and fast manner of all those billions to help people with economic relief. So it's really everything the government does is embodied in the response to the pandemic. Absolutely. And everyone else who's responding to all kinds of other urgent needs is doing it within the context of the pandemic. So whether it's thinking about the astronauts going to the space station or the Mars helicopter or whatever else it might be, all the work of the government continues on helping veterans, you name it, in addition to the normal challenges, they're all doing it, obviously, in the context of the pandemic challenges. And there were a couple of census-related finalists this year, and I thought that was pretty fitting given the travails that the Census Bureau had. But it looks like, ultimately, they got the right number from the right number of people in the right places. Yes, absolutely. And one of the more, I think, extraordinary efforts was trying to address disinformation to ensure that census would actually, people would would respond uh, and not fall prey to bad information. So again, as you say, there's just a extraordinary number of federal employees who are addressing, you know, whether it's weather-related or foreign policy challenges or, you know, one of the stories that I find really powerful is, you know, those that are helping to ensure that people who are foster children aging out of the system aren't dropping out of the system and are getting the support that they need. It's an incredible array of people helping Americans with critical problems. 
We're speaking with Max Steyer, president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. And in launching the program for this year, did you find that there was greater interest on people nominating other people and also from the backers and sponsors that make it all possible? This was really a strange year for public service. Did that help the whole effort this year, do you think? So, look, I think federal employees are the most modest group that I've ever encountered. And so I don't think that, you know, finding these stories, there are a lot of them out there, but we still have to do a lot of work to identify them. And we really count on your listeners and others who find something great going on and and letting us know. In terms of the support of the program, I will say that it is a constant struggle and we're keenly interested in any help that anyone can continue to give (laughs) us, partly right now, because we're actually doing two things. You know, it's really quite fun to see our, you know, we now have a virtual program that we are doing and launching the the finalist event, and we'll be doing a virtual film like we did last year, which was pretty awesome, and over 150,000 people watched it the first week. But we're planning on trying to do that and an in-person event. You know, it's a bigger lift for us, so the more the support we can get, the better. Yeah, that was right. Last year it was a film, and quite a few people did view it. In fact, you had sub-films. I remember the Nationals mascots, the racing presidents going to Anthony Fauci's house to present him with Public Servants of the Year award. So, But you're going to try to get in person again this year for the gala? We will. I think, you know, again, my bet is what we will absolutely do the virtual event, the film again. And the reason why is that it just can reach so many more people than we can in an in-person event. But the in-person event is also powerful. So our hope is to have our cake and eat it too. So time will tell, but we think that there's a pretty good shot that we can do both. And just while we have you, what's your take on the federal employee viewpoint scores from the macro level? They look pretty good covering the prior year when you had an administration, for better or for worse, was controversial, including among federal employees. What's your interpretation of what's going on there? So my sense of this is the first lesson I take from it is just, you know, in Perfect for Public Service Recognition Week is, Federal employees are amazingly resilient, and I think what we see from those numbers is that despite the incredible challenges of trying to do difficult jobs in a pandemic, 60% of which people are doing it remotely, that people were getting the job done and getting it done well. And it was a testament to the capability of the federal workforce to be innovative. And I think, just as a quick aside, I think this gives us real insight into the future of work for our federal government if we're thoughtful and intentional, we can actually build a better government based on the response to the pandemic. In terms of the, you know, overall engagement numbers, I think a lot of it has to do with the core reason why people are in the federal government is that they're there to help. They're mission-oriented people. And I think they saw and we all saw how central their work is to the health of our country and the health of our democracy. And I think that buoyed people. And I think a lot of the good numbers were related to that. I think you still see, you know, significant differentiation depending on the capability of the leadership of the various organizations of government. And that's always been true and I think will always be true. So better leaders, more engaged employees, better outcomes for the American people. But I think the American public should feel very encouraged by the workforce that they have. We need to invest in it so that it's there not just now but in the future. But, you know, we're lucky to have what we got. And just a question on the partnership itself, you have had a pretty active program of research into various aspects of public service and mission delivery and so forth. What's on the agenda for the coming year? We're going gangbusters. For one, I would say my view is we've been a lemonade factory. We've actually, despite all the really significant challenges, 
have gotten better at pretty much everything that we do and, like the federal workforce, have been very creative in doing it. So going forward, I'm excited about a lot of work we're doing. So one really key strategy that we'll be putting out shortly is a great approach about how we can refresh the federal workforce. So, again, one of the core challenges for our government is that only 6% about of the federal workforce is under the age of 30, and that's only 3% in IT, just as an example. And we have a strategy about how to deal with that, how to make sure we have the generational diversity we need now, which will also provide us workforce future strength. So that is very exciting to me. We're doing a lot of work in the technology area, understanding that that's such a fundamental enabler for good mission delivery in a place that the government is doing some great stuff but can do better across the board in learning from where they're doing it well. So that's exciting to me. Uh, we have a new effort trying to help Congress as an institution, and that to me is a big deal and a big part of the equation. So, you know, the list is long, and we believe there's a moment in time right now to make a bigger difference, and we want to make sure we make the most of that opportunity. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. As always, thanks for joining me. Thank you for your work. We'll post this interview along with a link to that list of finalists at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand, subscribe at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.